Chapter Fifty of Is He Popenjoy? This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Is He Popenjoy by Anthony Trollope? Chapter Fifty, Rodham Park. Lord George had undertaken to leave Manor Cross by the middle of August but when the first week of that month had passed away he had not as yet made up his mind what he would do with himself mr knox had told him that should he remain with his mother the marquis would not as mr knox thought take further notice of the matter but on such terms as these he could not consent to live in his brother's house on a certain day early in august lord george had gone with a return ticket to a town but a few miles distant from brotherton to sit on a committee for the distribution of coals and blankets and in the afternoon got into a railway carriage on his way home how great was his consternation when on taking his seat he found that his brother was seated alongside of him there was one other old gentleman in the carriage and the three passengers were all facing the engine on two of the seats opposite were spread out the marquis's travelling paraphernalia his french novel at which he had not looked his dressing-bag the box in which his luncheon had been packed and his wine-flask there was a small basket of strawberries should he be inclined to eat fruit and an early peach out of a hothouse with some flowers god almighty george is that you he said where the devil have you been i've been to grumby and what are the people doing at grumby much the same as usual it was the coal and blanket account oh the coal and blanket account i hope you liked it then he folded himself afresh in his cloaks ate a strawberry and looked as though he had taken sufficient notice of his brother but the matter was very important to lord george nothing ever seemed to be of importance to the marquis it might be very probable that the marquis with half a dozen servants behind him should drive up to the door at manor cross without having given an hour's notice of his intention it seemed to be too probable to lord george that such would be the case now for what other reason could he be there and then there was his back though they had quarrelled he was bound to ask after his brother's back when last they two had met the marquis had been almost carried into the room by two men i hope you find yourself better than when i last saw you he said after a pause of five minutes i've not much to boast of i can just travel and that's all and how is popenjoy upon my word i can't tell you he has never seemed to be very well when i've seen him i hope the accounts have been better said lord george with solicitude coal and blanket accounts suggested the marquis and then the conversation was again brought to an end for five minutes but it was essential that lord george should know whither his brother was going if to manor cross then thought lord george he himself would stay at an inn at brotherton anything even the deanery would be better than sitting at a table with his brother with the insults of their last interview unappeased at the end of five minutes he plucked up his courage and asked his brother another question are you going to the house brotherton the house what house i'm going to a house i hope i mean to manor cross not if i know it there is no house in this part of the country in which i should be less likely to show my face then there was not another word said till they reached the brotherton station and there the marquis who was sitting next to the door requested his brother to leave the carriage first get out will you he said i must wait for somebody to come and take these things and don't trample on me more than you can help this last request had apparently been made because lord george was unable to step across him without treading on the cloak 
"'I will say good-bye, then,' said Lord George, turning round on the platform for a moment. "'Ta-ta,' said the Marquis, as he gave his attention to the servant who was collecting the fruit, and the flowers, and the flask. Lord George then passed on out of the station and saw no more of his brother. "'Of course he is going to Rudham,' said Lady Susanna when she heard the story. Rudham Park was the seat of Mr. de Baron, Mrs. Houghton's father, and tidings had reached Manor Cross long since that the Marquis had promised to go there in the autumn. No doubt other circumstances had seemed to make it improbable that the promise should be kept. Popenjoy had gone away ill, as many said, in a dying condition. Then the Marquis had been thrown into a fireplace, and report had said that his back had been all but broken. It had certainly been generally thought that the Marquis would go nowhere after that affair in the fireplace, till he returned to Italy. But Lady Susanna was, in truth, right. His lordship was on his way to Rudham Park. Mr. de Baron of Rudham Park, though a much older man than the Marquis, had been the Marquis's friend. When the Marquis came of age, being then the Pope and Joy of those days, and a fast young man known as such about England, Mr. de Baron, who was a neighbor, had taken him by the hand. Mr. de Baron had put him in the way of buying and training racehorses, and had, perhaps, been godfather to his pleasures in other matters. Rudham Park had never been loved at Manor Cross by others than the present lord, and for that reason, perhaps, was dearer to him. He had promised to go there soon after his return to England, and was now keeping his promise. On his arrival, there the Marquis found a house full of people. There were Mr. and Mrs. Houghton, and Lord Giblet, who, having engaged himself rashly to Miss Patmore Green, had rushed out of town sooner than usual that he might devise in retirement some means of escaping from his position and to lord giblet's horror there was mrs montacute jones who he well knew would if possible keep him to the collar there was also aunt julia with her niece gus and of course there was jack de baron the marquis was rather glad to meet jack as to whom he had some hope that he might be induced to run away with lord george's wife and thus free the germain family from that little annoyance but the guest who surprised the marquis the most was the baroness bamman whose name and occupation he did not at first learn very distinctly all right again my lord asked mr de baron as he welcomed his noble guest upon my word i'm not then that coal-heaving brute of a parson pretty nearly did for me a terrible outrage it was outrage i should think so there's nothing so bad as a clerical bully what was i to do with him of course he was the stronger. I don't pretend to be a Samson. One doesn't expect that kind of thing among gentlemen. No, indeed. I wish I could have him somewhere with a pair of foils with the buttons off. His black coat shouldn't save his intestines. I don't know what the devil the country has come to when such a fellow as that is admitted into people's houses. You won't meet him here, Brotherton. I wish I might. I think I'd manage to be even with him before he got away. Who's the baroness you have got? I don't know much about her. My daughter Adelaide, Mrs. Houghton, you know, has brought her down. There's been some row among the women up in London. This is one of the prophets, and I think she is brought here despite Lady Selina Protest, who has taken an American prophetess by the hand. She won't annoy you, I hope? Not in the least. I like strange wild beast. And so that is Captain de Baron, of whom I have heard? That is my nephew Jack. He has a small fortune of his own, which he is spending fast as long as at last one has to be civil to him. I am delighted to meet him. Don't they say he is sweet on a certain young woman? A dozen, I believe. Ah, but one I know something of. I don't think there is anything in that, Brotherton. 
I don't indeed, or I shouldn't have brought him here. I do, though. And as to not bringing him here, why shouldn't you bring him? If she don't go off with him, she will with somebody else, and the sooner the better, according to my ideas. This was a matter upon which Mr. de Baron was not prepared to dilate, and he therefore changed the subject. My dear Lord Giblet, it is such a pleasure to me to meet you here, old Mrs. Jones said to that young nobleman. When I was told you were to be at Rudham, it determined me at once. This was true, for there was no more persistent friend living than old Mrs. Jones, though it might be doubted whether on this occasion Lord Giblet was the friend on whose behalf she had come to Rudham. It's very nice, isn't it? said Lord Giblet, gasping. Hadn't we a pleasant time of it with our little parties in Grosvenor Place? Never liked anything so much in life. Only I don't think that fellow Jack de Baron dances so much better than other people after all. Who says he does? But I'll tell you who dances well. Olivia Green was charming in the Kappa Kappa, don't you think so? Uncommon pretty. Lord Giblet was quite willing to be understood to admire Miss Patmore Green, though he thought it hard that people should hurry him on into matrimony. The most graceful girl I ever saw in my life, certainly, said Mrs. Montacute Jones. His Royal Highness, when he heard of the engagement, said that you were the happiest man in London. Lord Giblet could not satisfy himself by declaring that His Royal Highness was an old fool, as poor Mary had done on a certain occasion. But at the present moment he did not feel at all loyal to the royal family generally, nor did he, in the least, know how to answer Mrs. Jones. She had declared the engagement as a fact, and he did not quite dare to deny it altogether. He had, in an unguarded moment, when the weather had been warm and the champagne cool, said a word with so definite a meaning that the lady had been justified in not allowing it to pass by as idle. The lady had accepted him, and on the following morning he had found the lock of hair in the little stud which she had given him, and had feverish reminiscences of a kiss. But surely he was not a bird to be caught with so small a grain of salt as that. He had not as yet seen Mr. Patmore Green, having escaped from London at once. He had answered a note from Olivia, which had called him Dearest Charlie by a counter-note, in which he had called her Dear O, and had signed himself Ever Yours G, promising to meet her up the river. But of course he had not gone up the river. The rest of the season might certainly be done without assistance from him. He knew that he would be pursued. He could not hope not to be pursued. But he had not thought that Mrs. Montacute Jones would be so quick upon him. It was impossible that His Royal Highness should have heard of any engagement as yet. What a nasty, false, wicked old woman she was! He blushed, red as a rose, and stammered out that he didn't know. He was only four-and-twenty, and perhaps he didn't know. I never saw a girl so much in love in my life, continued Mrs. Jones. I know her just as well as if she were my own, and she speaks to me as she doesn't dare to speak to you at present. Though she is barely twenty-one, she has been very much sought after already, and the very day she marries she has ten thousand pounds in her own hands. That isn't a large fortune, and of course you don't want a large fortune, but it isn't every girl can pay a sum straight into her husband's bank the moment she marries. No, indeed, said Lord Giblet. He was still determined that nothing should induce him to marry Miss Green. But nevertheless, behind that resolution there was a feeling that if anything should bring about the marriage, such a sum of ready money would be a consolation. His father, the Earl of Jopling, though a very rich man, kept him a little close, and ten thousand pounds would be nice. But then, perhaps the old woman was lying. Now I'll tell you what I want you to do, said Mrs. Jones, who was resolved that if the game were not landed it should not be her fault. We go from here to Killing Codlam next week. You must come and join us. 
"'I've got to go and grouse at Strandbracket's,' said Lord Giblet, happy in an excuse. "'It couldn't be better. They're both within eight miles of Dunkeld. "'If so, then Rope shouldn't take him to Strandbracket's that year. "'Of course he'll come. It's the prettiest place in Perth, though I say it as oughtn't. "'And she will be there. If you really want to know a girl, see her in a country house.' "'But he didn't really want to know the girl. "'She was very nice, and he liked her uncommonly. "'But he didn't want to know anything more about her.' By George, was a man to be persecuted this way, because he had once spooned a girl a little too fiercely? As he thought of this, he almost plucked up his courage sufficiently to tell Mrs. Jones that she had better pick out some other young man for deportation to killing Codla. I should like it ever so, he said. I'll take care that you shall like it, Lord Giblet. I think I may boast that when I put my wits to work I can make my house agreeable. I'm very fond of young people, but there's no one I love as I do Olivia Green. There isn't a young woman in London has so much to be loved for. Of course she'll come. What day shall we name? I don't think I could name a day. Let us say the 27th. That will give you nearly a week at the grouse first. Be with us to dinner on the 27th. Well, perhaps I will. Of course you will. I shall write to Olivia tonight, and I dare say you will do so also. Lord Giblet, when he was let to go, tried to set consolation from the ten thousand pounds. Though he was still resolved, he almost believed that Mrs. Montacute Jones would conquer him. Write to Olivia to-night? Lying, false old woman! Of course she knew that there was hardly a lady in England to whom it was so little likely that he should write to, as Miss Patmore Green. How could an old woman, with one foot in the grave, be so wicked? And why should she persecute him? What had he done to her? Olivia Green was not her daughter, or even her niece. "'So you are going to kill Codlam, Mrs. Houghton said to him that afternoon. "'She has asked me,' said Lord Giblet. "'It's simply the most comfortable house in all Scotland, "'and they tell me some of the best deer-stalking. "'Everybody likes to get to kill Codlam. "'Don't you love old Mrs. Jones? "'Charming old woman. "'And such a friend. "'If she once takes to you, she never drops you. "'Sticks like wax, I should say. "'White like wax, Lord Giblet.' and when she makes up her mind to do a thing, she always does it. It's quite wonderful, but she never gets beaten. Doesn't she now? Never. She hasn't asked us to kill in Codlam yet, but I hope she will. A manly resolution now roused itself in Lord Giblet's bosom that he would be the person to beat Mrs. Jones at last. But yet he doubted it. If he were asked the question by anyone having a right to ask, he could not deny that he had proposed to marry Miss Patmore Green, "'So you've come down to send your wings again?' said Mrs. Houghton to her cousin Jack. "'My wings have been burned clean away already, and, in point of fact, I am not half so near to Lady George here as I was in London. It's only ten miles. If it were five, it would be the same. We're not in the same set down here in Bardetshire. I suppose you can have yourself taken to Brotherton, if you please. Yes, I can call it the deanery, but I shouldn't know what to say when I got there. You've become very mealy-mouthed of a sudden.' Not with you, my sweet cousin. With you I can discuss the devil and all his works as freely as ever. But with Lady George, at her father's house, I think I should be dumb. In truth, I haven't got anything to say to her. I thought you had. I know you think so, but I haven't. It is quite on the card that I may ride over some day, as I would to see my sister. Your sister? And that I shall make eager inquiries after her horse, her pet dog, and her husband. You will be wrong there, for she has quarrelled with her husband altogether. I hope not. They are not living together, and never even see each other. He's at Manor Cross, and she's at the deanery. 
She's a divinity to you, but Lord George seems to have found her so human that he's tired of her already. Then it must be his own fault. Or perhaps yours, Jack. You don't suppose a husband goes through a little scene like that at Mrs. Jones's without feeling it? He made an ass of himself, and a man generally feels that afterwards, said Jack. The truth is, they're tired of each other. There isn't very much in Lord George, but there is something. He is slow, but there is a certain manliness at the bottom of it, but there isn't very much in her. That's all you know about it. Perhaps you may know her better, but I could never find anything. You confess to being in love, and of course a lover is blind. But where you are most wrong is in supposing that she is something so much better than other women. She flirted with you so frankly that she made you think her a goddess. She never flirted with me in her life. Exactly, because flirting is bad, and she being a goddess cannot do evil. I wish you'd take her in your arms and kiss her. I shouldn't dare. No, and therefore you're not in the way to learn that she's a woman just the same as other women. Will Mrs. Jones succeed with that stupid young man? With Giblet? I hope so. It can't make any difference to him whether it's this one or another, and I do like Mrs. Jones. Would they let me have just a little lecture in the dining-room? asked the baroness of her friend Aunt Jew. There had been certain changes among the disabilities up in London. Lady Selina Protest had taken Dr. Olivia Q. Fleabody altogether by the hand, and had appointed her chief professor at the Institute, perhaps without sufficient authority. Aunt Jew had been cast into the shade, and had consequently been driven to throw herself into the arms of the baroness. At present there was a terrible feud in which Aunt Jew was being much worsted, for the baroness was an old man of the sea, and having got herself on to Aunt Jew's shoulders could not be shaken off. In the meantime, Dr. Fleabody was filling the institute, reaping a golden harvest and breaking the heart of the poor baroness who had fallen into much trouble and was now altogether penniless. "'I'm afraid not,' said Aunt Jew. "'I'm afraid we can't do that. Perhaps de Marquis would like it? I hardly think so.' He did say a word to me, and I think he would like it. He want to understand. My dear Baroness, I'm sure the Marquis of Brotherton does not care about it in the least. He is quite in the dark on such subjects, quite benighted. What was the use, thought the Baroness, of bringing her down to a house in which people were so benighted that she could not be allowed to open her mouth or carry on her profession? Had she not been enticed over from her own country in order that she might open her mouth and preach her doctrine and become a great and a wealthy woman? There was a fraud in this enforced silence which cut her to the very quick. I think I shall try, she said, separating herself in her wrath from her friend. End of chapter 50